You like my necklace? Giving out angel wings. If you have kids in kids' church, uh, there's a party next Saturday, right? What time does it start? What time? 9 9 a.m. How long is it? I mean, how long can I get rid of my kids is what I'm really asking. (laughs) All right. So I said I would wear this that long, and uh, if I keep wearing it, I'm going to give out too many angel wings. That's probably what's going to happen. So anyway, you want me to just throw it back there? I'm just kidding. Let me just set this down. All right. Good to see you guys this morning. You having a good uh, Christmas season so far? How many of you are still struggling admitting it's Christmas season? Raise a hand. We have Christmas uh, Anonymous in the back. You can, no, I'm just kidding. Good deal. Well, good deal. Today we're going to talk about being blessed with a mission. So we've been in a series on how we are blessed and blessed by God. And today we're going to talk about the mission that we are blessed with and uh, some aspects of it. I'm pretty excited about about that. I'm excited about what God has for us to do. I'm also excited how that we get to be used by God. I think that's pretty exciting. Um, when I surrendered to the ministry in 1994, God put some people in my life that no one's ever heard of except me. But they made a big difference in my life. You know, one of them was my pastor, Jim Campbell. And he was the one I was talking to. You know, every couple of weeks, he'd throw me some theological concept to completely throw my theology in disarray, and that's exactly what he did, and make me wrestle with what I believed. It was a a very good and chaotic season in my life. And then I was ordained and started pastoring a church in Zenith, Missouri, and God brought Doug Clinton and Troy Alley into my life. And we took seminary classes together in the evenings, uh, an evening a week. And during that time, they they were just my friend. They were just my friend. And then I realized, now I realize, you know, many years uh, removed from the fact that friendship is the basis for discipleship. And they discipled and mentored me. We had conversations about the struggles we faced in ministry. But they were just faithful. They were just guys following Jesus. And following Jesus means you you are somebody's friend. And following Jesus means you help them follow Jesus. And so God put them in, in my life. And then God called me to plant churches and moved me to Colorado in 2000. And I met Stan Felder there. And Stan Felder is this really go get him kind of guy. Never, he's ordained, but he never was a pastor of a church or anything. He's just a missionary. And uh, he, he taught me how to party up a church. <laughs> That's really what we did. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and uh, he taught me how to uh, do kids' ministry and different things like that, which are not really my strengths. But we would do cotton candy and popcorn and stuff like that all summer long and make friends and build churches out of them. That's how we planted churches in the rural plains of northeast Colorado. And there have been many others in my life. Actually, one of my favorites was one I met in southeast Missouri. His name was A.C. Gardner. And if you, when he'd introduce him, himself, he would say, I'm A.C. Gardner, all credit Gardner, is what he'd say. He was 80 years old when I met him. He'd already been pastoring 50 years, plus, when I met him. He was still preaching in every country church in the Boot Hill of Missouri, which if you've never been to the Boot Hill of Missouri, you haven't missed a thing, okay? It's just flat, ugly as can be, but, you know, it's just what it is. And, um, but good, good, salt-of-the-earth kind of people. These guys are never going to make a history book. They're never going to have a big stage like the big names today. No one's ever going to throw them on a pedestal and, and mimic their ministry after them. They're just faithful servants of Jesus. And they changed my life, every last one of them. Every last one of them encouraged me and taught me things I did not know, and they were a blessing to me. I wonder, 
I call them the underdogs <laughs> because they don't get the platforms and the notoriety and the billboards and what have you. They're just faithful. And in their faithfulness, they see that that's their place in the kingdom and they're good with it because they realize that the kingdom isn't about men on pedestals and platforms. The kingdom is about Jesus Christ. How many of you have had an underdog step into your life and change it for the better? Would you just amen or wave a hand, something like that? Everybody's been touched by an underdog. Well, guys, I'm talking to a room full of world changers here. And I know that sounds like a, a catchy idea. You may not feel like that you can take a stage or a platform or that you can do anything that significant in the grand scheme of things. But that's not what I'm asking you to do, and that's not what Jesus asked you to do, unless he specifically asked you to do it. No, but you can change the world you live in. You can be Jesus in your family, workplace, friendships, at the hockey rink, the beauty parlor. They still call them that? Beauty salon? That's dated myself, didn't I? There's a few, hair, a few, few, few people who do hair in this room. I don't know what the right word is. I probably just offended half of you right there, man. I'm sorry. They're probably going, oh, he did it all wrong. <coughs> Wherever you are, you can be Jesus there. And that's the mission. There's an overarching mission, but today we're going to talk about a couple of things that, that contribute to that mission of making Jesus known and giving the world access to Jesus Christ. Because we have to understand that this doesn't start with me. It's not about me. I'm sorry, it does, it's not about me. But, we, but that it always starts with me. In order for anyone to be reached and encounter the love of God, someone has to get a bigger vision. Somebody has to start living outside of their own little small mind and realize that God loves everybody. And God wants to help everybody. I don't know how you feel about what I'm about to say, and my concern isn't how you feel about it. My concern is that you deal with it. It's simply this. I believe Jesus is the answer. Amen. I don't have the answers, but I believe Jesus is the answer. I believe every person in this room that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has the answer. How is the answer going to get out of you and onto them? Because that's the mission. It's getting Jesus out of you and into this world in which we live. So for that to happen, we've got to do a few things. First, we've got to come together in unity. We've got to learn what it means to be unified and work together. And I take, think it takes a couple things, so we're going to climb into Philippians chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 11, background text. If you want to dig in and get all theologically sound with it, you can dig in there all you want. I'm going to plow through it a couple verses at a time, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by, follow these three things, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together. Now here is the basis for unity right here. Learning how to agree with each other. Learning how to get along. As Rodney King put it so aptly in the 90s, why can't we all just get along? It might have got along better if he hadn't attacked the cops, but that's another thing. <clears throat> another matter. 
How can we learn to agree with each other? Well, it's easy to agree with each other if we first learn how to agree with Jesus. You see, I don't have to agree with you first. If I agree with Jesus, you agree with Jesus, bam, problem solved. We agree. Okay? That's how we need to think of this. And so if I can move into that agreement. Now, we got to understand, though, just because we agree with each other doesn't mean that we always agree with each other. There's a difference between being in agreement and actually agreeing in the moment. And we have to learn that. Paul and Barnabas, great couple of guys, amazing missionaries in the New Testament, and they agreed on something. They agreed that the world needed access to Jesus. They agreed that people needed to know that Jesus Christ was the answer. But they didn't always agree with each other. But their agreement about the larger thing, when it came to a point of conflict in their life, what had happened was a guy named Mark went with him on the first journey. He bailed early. Paul was mad. Barnabas was kind of the guy who was always bringing people in, soothing feathers, helping people along. Barnabas was like, hey, let's take Mark. Paul was like, not happening. No. So instead of disagreeing and stopping Giving access to Jesus, they decided to take two mission trips instead of one. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul took Silas. They came together in agreement over a disagreement. Does that make sense? Now, I did want to tell you there was a cool ending to that story. Because later, Paul would come around, and he'd say, in the end of 2 Timothy, which was Paul's last letter before he died, he said, only Luke is with me. And bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in the ministry. I want you to know that there was a contention, but there was a, eventually there was a place that it all got settled. And so I think that's good. So they agreed that making Jesus known was the number one thing. So I want us to think about how we can agree together. And one thing, I'd like to add three thoughts here, just real quick. I know civil discourse among adults shouldn't be a problem, but it is. And so, if I could just say, we really need to learn how to do things like, I don't know, listen to each other. That'd be good. If I could throw that out there. Uh, we're kind of at an age where we, we kind of get entrenched in being right, and we're afraid to listen to people because we're actually afraid we're wrong. And so we just get more deeply entrenched in what we believe is right, and we never listen to someone else. And, and if I could just use Jesus' example, he, he didn't do that. He listened to people, okay? Now, yes, he did call some people out and straighten some people up, but it was usually people who were misrepresenting his father that he went after, okay? And so we can learn to listen to each other. And if I could throw this out for free, you know, dad advice. This is dad advice. Someone listening to you is not necessarily someone agreeing with you. I've had that discussion with some of my children and, and other people. I mean, I've had a couple of disagreements in my life, one or five million, and uh, I can't help it. Everybody else is wrong. I've been trying to fix that. <laughs> and over the years, I've realized a lot of people think that you don't listen to them if you don't ultimately agree with them. And we have to give people permission to have their own thoughts and ideas, don't we? I mean, God doesn't go in and just bully your life around. He lets you think, and he guides you, and he loves you patiently. We have to be that way. So we need to, to learn to listen to each other. We need to have some basic manners when we have conversations with each other, like not interrupting each other. Isn't that frustrating today when you can't complete a thought because you're being interrupted? Especially if you're trying to type it on Facebook, and the other first person's a faster typer. <laughs> like, ah, I am five sentences of disagreement behind. What's going on? 
And third, and we're actually going to spend January talking about boundaries, and third is just have some good boundaries in your life. What are boundaries about? Boundaries are about putting a gate in your life to let in good stuff and let out bad stuff. It's about setting some lines in your life so you can grow. But we'll spend January talking about that. I won't get to a whole lot of detail on it. Just simply this, if we're going to be unified, we've got to learn to talk to each other. And uh, like adults and those kind of things, as fun as that would be. Also, if we're going to carry on, the verse says we're also supposed to love each other. It says we're supposed to be in agreement and love each other. And so I would suggest that if we're going to love each other, the first thing we should do, if we're going to agree with each other, we should both agree with Jesus. That makes it easier. If we're going to love each other, we should both love God first. Start with God. You'll find it's a lot easier to love your brother or sister or your mom or dad or your children or your grandchildren, especially when they're cantankerous. Not that yours are, but my family has that hereditary thing where people are ornery. <laughs> if we could learn to love God first, we would love others first. Now, how do we learn to love God? 1 John 4.10 says this, This is real love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. I, I tell you the secret to loving God, let God love you. Learn to receive God's love. And I, I believe that is a major lesson we all need to learn is how to be loved by God. How to, to stop trying to get God's approval and stop trying to work into some kind of good favor with God. You're already in good favor with God. Jesus took care of that. If you could just chill out, and, re and learn to receive God's love, you will find that people who are well-loved love others well. And so if you have a hard time loving people, you need to let God love you. That's step number one. Stop beating yourself up about what you've done. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I, and I guess I will pause for a second. You know God loves you, right? He's just crazy about you. He loves you. And he doesn't just love you, he loves the people you don't like too, and I know that's disturbing. <laughs> what is wrong with him? And that's, what, that's an answer that people need, is that God loves them. Then, also, if we're going to work, so we have to agree with each other, no problem. We got that, no problem. Love each other, no problem. Then Paul tells us that we also need to work together. Now, working together is easier if you have the same mind. Agreeing with each other is easier if we agree with Jesus. Loving each other is easier if we love God. And working together is easier if we all think the same. Well, no, we can't all think the same. Well, actually we can. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says this. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things. Oh, I, need, I don't think you caught that, okay? So Paul is quoting from the Psalms. Who can know the Lord's thought? Who knows enough to teach him? Then he throws a conjunction in there. But. But what? Well, we know. Who knows the Lord's thoughts? We do. Okay, we need to say that together on the count of three. One, who knows the Lord's thoughts? One, two, three. We do. Well, good job, guys. Now, some of you are sitting there going, well, they do. I don't know if we do, but they do. How do we know the Lord's thoughts? We understand these things, for we have, we have the mind of Christ. We're not waiting for the mind of Christ. We're not trying to get into the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And I know some of you are like, wow, my mind's pretty messed up in there. It's okay. Jesus died to fix that too. There isn't a thing wrong with you that Jesus didn't die to take care of. 
Okay? So we have that mind in us. We know. So if we start to lean into that mind that's in us, that heart of God, that mind of Jesus that's in us, we will change. What, is it, what does that look like, Michael? I am so glad you asked. I mean, I had it in my notes that you would ask, and you just asked. Thank God. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22, For the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. That's what the mind of Christ looks like. It looks like love and joy and peace and gentleness and faith, patience and self-control. That's what his mind looks like. What's going on in your life? And you're sitting there going, well, that's why I'm arguing with you on the mind of Christ thing, because that's not in my life. So the real question is, why not? Why not? Because you're a believer. You believe Jesus is the answer, right? Hey, thanks, Brother Leonard. Good deal. We're saved. Woo! Let's try it again. You believe Jesus is the answer, right? Yeah. All right. Then you have the mind of Christ in you. Who has the mind of Christ? We do. That's right, in you. And so that means when life squeezes you, instead of all that anger, oh, I'm sorry, we like to call it frustration. Isn't that what we do? Listen, honey, I need to talk. Are you angry? No, no, I'm frustrated. And frustrated is just a lot more syllables for saying angry. So next time, just say ticked and move on. I'm ticked at you, you know? No, all that stuff comes out. Where's that stuff coming from? Well, it's coming from what we know to do. We were born in a world that's broken, and so many of our behaviors come out of that brokenness because it's what we know and it's what we're comfortable with. Well, Jesus died so that you could have eternal life, not broken life. Do you understand that? Jesus died so that you could have eternal life, not broken life. Now, some of you are suddenly going, well, yeah, when we die and go to heaven, we'll have eternal life. Wrong. That's wrong. You missed it by a lifetime, your lifetime to be specific. Jesus died, and he told us that eternal life was to know God. How do we know God? Well, you have the mind of Christ, so we know God. And so, guys, if we stop doing what we know to do in this broken world and start doing and living in the love, joy, peace. In fact, Graham Cooks put it this way. He says, when we have a situation break out in our life, this is not word for word. He says, what God wants us to do is probably just the opposite of what we want to do. And so like something breaks out and you want to get angry and you want to go to war or whatever it is you want to do, why not, instead of doing that, maybe God wants you to have peace. And I don't want to sound all, you know, young or anything because that's the last thing I am. But peacing out, the young people would say it. Maybe that's exactly what we need to do instead of freaking out. Start expressing love. I guess what we need to learn from this is we come together in unity. It's a lot easier when Jesus is coming out of us when the pressure's on. It's a lot easier when we're in agreement with Jesus to be in agreement with each other. It's a lot better to love each other, easier to love each other when we love God. So we have a mission to come together. Unity is not about sameness. It's about harmony. It's about all these different opinions, ideas, personality types working together for one mission. What's the mission? To make Jesus known. That's always the mission. To make Jesus known, to give everybody access to Jesus.
You have a mission to unify. Then you have a mission to exemplify. I apologize, this is a stretch on alliteration. The back end of it there. We have a mission to be an example. We have a mission to represent Jesus Christ. The Bible goes on in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of, of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus is like. So when you want to understand how to represent Jesus and how to be like Jesus in the world, you need to go to Philippians 2 and see how Jesus was Jesus. How did he do it? He humbled himself. He laid aside the mission of Jesus that he might live out the mission of the Father. That's how Jesus did it. And so that's what we need to do. We need to draw close to God. How did Jesus do it? He did it through humility. What is humility? Well, we're all familiar with that false humility stuff, right? Where everyone walks around and it's, it's actually false pride is what it is. But we, we kind of act humble, but we're not. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? It's okay. You sit there and look spiritual. I got you. I'm with you now. I'm with you. I hear you. I've done the same thing too. If we draw close to God in humility, God promises he'll draw close to us. We'll look at that verse in just a second. You see, I said this earlier, i say it again. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. I'm not the answer. You're not the answer. You, you, you making more money, living the life you want, a dream, that, that's not the answer. Jesus is the answer. Humility is not holding your head down low or whatever. Humility is a couple things. The first thing it is is it's confidence. Probably, that surprised you maybe. What do you mean it's confidence? Humility is confidence that God's got this. It's not timidity. It's not being afraid. It's not acting like you're unsure and insecure. But actually, it's just the opposite. Humility is a confidence that God is absolutely, certainly, and totally in control. Humility is a reliance on this, that God is in charge here. That no matter what's happening, it's coming through or around some way in the loving nature of God. And in knowing that God's in charge, I can rest in Him. I don't have to control this. I don't have to, oh, who needed that? You want to raise your hand or something. I don't have to control this. God is the one who's in charge. He's the Lord. He raises up one and sets down another. That's what humility is. It's a confidence. God's in control. But it's also joy. God's in control. This isn't mine to control. And because I don't understand. How many of you guys try and control things and you realize you're an idiot? Say, Michael, that was harsh. I'm not talking, I didn't say that to you. I'm just like, how many times in my life I'm trying to, you know, control my kids, control my, try and work things out for people or whatever, and then realize I have no idea what I'm doing. I would make a lousy God because I'm not very smart. I don't know what's going on. Ask my wife. She would testify that. He really doesn't know what's going on. 
But man, when things come into our life, rather than freaking out, getting angry, insecure, whatever, thinking that everyone else is wrong and, and manifesting the fruits of the flesh in Galatians 5, what if we moved into the fruits of the Spirit and trusted God to love, fill us with joy, because God's in control and we realize that the greatest opportunities in our life usually come wrapped in a really big problem. Amen? Amen. So how many of you guys right now have a big problem in your life? Don't raise your hand, but you can do this right here. Oh, we got, there we got a big problem. God's got an opportunity in that for you. In fact, there's some questions that we could ask. I'll come back to those in a minute. Let me jump to James 4. I want to look at verse 8 first, even though verse 7 is before verse 8, at least where I went to school. James 4, 8, come close to God. And God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Humility brings us in close to God. And as we draw close to God, we release what's broken in this place. And embrace what's whole in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, though, I should back up because verse 7 says, Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So if we're going to draw close to God, if we're going to model Jesus Christ, we come close to God in humility, we also, have to, we also have to fight an enemy. Your theology may not allow for a, a, an entity called the devil. And I respect your journey. And I just ask you for a moment during this message to kind of wonder at least, if there might be someone actually out to get you. Because the Bible says there is. He's an accuser. And he's trying to, at first, he's trying to distract you. Because the secret to happiness, joy, life, everything is closeness with your Father God. And so he wants to distract you and keep you out of that closeness. If I'm going to model Jesus, i got to stay focused. I need focus on the Father. I need focus on life. Jesus said to the disciples in John 6, which is this really disturbing chapter in God's Word where Jesus basically blows everybody's mind and everyone leaves, and the disciples are standing there around him, and all that's left after thousands have walked away are these disciples, and Jesus looks and says, are you guys going to split too? Going to split the 70s translation of the King James, but anyway, are you guys going to split too? And, and, uh, and Peter comes up and says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Only Jesus' is life. Netflix isn't life. Parties aren't life. Fun in the outdoors is not life. Nothing outside of Jesus is life. All those other things inside of Jesus can be life, but they got to be brought inside of Jesus. Jesus is life. The enemy's trying to pull you out of that. So don't let him. Don't let him distract you from your purpose. Don't let him distract you from your worship. Don't let him distract you from your mission in life. And maybe you're sitting there going, well, I don't really know what my mission is. I, I think you will by the end of this. And so he's trying to distract you from those things. So we want to be an example. And in that, so we want to draw close to God. We want to resist the enemy. He's trying to distract us. We also want to obey God because that's what being a Christian is about, guys. It's about actually obeying God. Walking in the Spirit 
is about doing what the Spirit wants to do. Not, not the Spirit following you around doing what you want to do. That's not how this works. Jesus said, if you, if you obey my commandments, I will love you and the Father will come to you. And so there's this thing of obedience in our life. We represent Jesus just like Jesus. I mean, represent Jesus just like Jesus represented the Father. How did he do that? He put his mission on the back burner. And he surrendered to the Father's mission in his life. And that may be why you're struggling in your Christianity. Because you won't put your mission on the back burner. You know... The, the secret to being and living as a son of God, a child of God, is submitting to the Father's mission, is surrender. If we're going to model Jesus Christ, we have to learn this thing of obedience. And what does that look like? Man, it looks like whatever the Father says it looks like. The Father today might say it might be speaking up. It might be rejoicing, it might be worshiping, it might be serving, it might be proclaiming, it might be standing faithful, it might be waiting. The problem is, we usually like one answer in a situation. You know, we like to do one thing. When we get frustrated, we like to yell, or, we get, or maybe we like to worship. Sometimes it takes a different answer. That's what the Holy Spirit shows us. So, if we're going to work together and serve into this bigger mission, which we're about to get to, we've got to learn to work together in unity. We have to learn to demonstrate and represent Jesus Christ because the mission is, the ultimate mission, is to glorify God. It's the glory of God. It's not my glory. It's not your glory. Do you know why the mission is to glorify God? Because the answer is not you. The answer is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's the God. It's God in our lives. The Bible goes on and says this in Philippians. It says, therefore God elevated Jesus to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above other names, all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the answer. That's it. Do you hear that? Everything's going to bow to that. Your job, your retirement, your funeral, all of it is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Every dream you have, every enemy you have, all of hell even, are all going to bow at the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Man. Yeah, I thought it was, amen, you know. Man. Here's the thing. I think the world needs to know that. Don't you? Jesus is the answer, and there isn't another one. You can be nice and kind and sweet and loving to your unbelieving neighbors or your Buddhist neighbors or your Islamic neighbors or your LDS neighbors or any of those neighbors or your atheist and agnostic, or agnostic neighbors. You can be kind, and that's good, and you should love them. But here's the thing. There's only one answer. There are not multiple ways to God. I mean, I don't even want there to be because that would be so confusing. But Jesus made it clear that his name is the name that mattered. There's no other name. There's salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one name that saves. So this morning I was doing a... I, I didn't realize that there were 99 attributes of Allah in, in Islam. So I read them this morning. I just found this out like last night. I hadn't heard that before because 
Um, I'm lazy and didn't research it earlier. <laughs> and so I read through the 99 attributes, kind of like the names of God, but out of Islam. And God is judge, God is just, God is watching. It's, most of them are pretty scary. You know what's not there? God is Father. God is love. The most important thing God is, God is love, not there. The idea of God as Father would be completely offensive to someone worshiping in Islam. But God loves them. That means we can't hate them. I know that stings a little. Yeah, I know there are real dangers. I also know Christians have a long history of laying down their lives and bleeding out and dying to evangelize the very people who are killing them. That's kind of how God planned it out. I know it's not really comfortable, but it wasn't really comfortable that Jesus Christ came from heaven, became an actual human being, and died on a cross either. God's own son he nails to a cross, but we have this crazy idea that he wants us to not encounter any suffering. And if we ever do, we think it's because we made him mad. That's not the mission. The mission isn't you. The mission is the Father. And that he loves and he died on a cross for every soul on this planet. He wants to see every last one of them saved. He loves them all. And what he wants to do through you is he wants to love people through you. That's what he wants to do. He wants the love in you to be so strong and so powerful and so mighty that it just gets on everybody that you're around. And that's the mission, to let the Father God's love crawl out of you onto everybody in your life, on your kids, on your wife, on your husband, your mom, dad, your kids, everybody. That's the mission. Let God out of you. Amen. There is no other way John said, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Minding our own business and keeping our mouths shut sounds cruel. I'm not saying we should go over to our neighbor's house and nail a thesis to his door about what's wrong with their theology or something. I mean, it worked for Martin Luther. Actually, it didn't. <laughs> he was condemned to death, as I recall. He got out of it because he was slick. Jesus came and loved people. And I believe the church is at a place where our, our mission, our job, is to love people in such a way that we get an opportunity to tell them about God's great love for them. I know there's, I know some, there's that, I don't know, there's always been that vein in the church that's telling the world what's wrong with it. And if I could help you for just a second. Guys, you may disagree with me, and it's okay. The world knows they're condemned. That's the problem. In everyone's heart, they already know the condemnation. Jesus says they're not, he said in John 3, or John the Baptist may have said it, men are not waiting to be condemned. They are condemned already. And the heart knows this. We know this. It's why we live under a sense of guilt and shame and struggling and struggle receiving the Father's love. What the world needs to see, they do need to hear the truth about the gospel, but they need to hear it from someone who it breaks their heart to tell them 
what's really going on. Several years ago, uh, I, I haven't preached on the judgment wrath of God many times in my ministry, not specifically on the place of wrath called hell. But several years ago, I was in a, I was pastoring a church, and one Sunday, that's what God wanted me to do. And it was awful. There's a, Jesus used this word to describe hell in the Gospels called Guiana. And it was this trash dump on the outside of Jerusalem. And I remember preaching that message, pleading with people to trust Jesus Christ, and just couldn't stop crying. Can't imagine something so horrible. Guys, Jesus down on a cross to stop that. And God's wrath is a real thing. I, I, don't, I don't think you can honestly read the Bible and dismiss it. And I know a lot of people are nowadays. They're trying to erase hell, so to speak, as Francis Chan wrote in his book a few years ago. God's heart was displayed on the cross. That's what Father God wants. He wants you saved. He wants your neighbor to come to faith. He wants your enemy to encounter the life-changing love of God. And if you're sitting here right now and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I encourage you, your Father in heaven loves you. And he's done everything to get to you. And so the mission is to let people know, to show people. And I'm afraid the mission field's just as big in the church as it is out of it. But hey, that's okay. It's easier to get to them in the church, right? They're already here. Guys, I challenge you today as we enter into communion and as we worship in that way, don't just dip the wafer and take a nibble and go on with your day. Take your oath. I'm in the king's army. I fight that the world may know that there's an answer. The answer has a name. And my father loves people. Heavenly Father, I know you're raising up an army. I know there's a generation, some have called it a Joshua generation. It's a, a generation that's going to enter the promised land. Some of the young people in this room today, God's moving to be part of that, even though they may not be fully aware of what God's doing in their life. But it's, it's not a generation based on age. It could be anybody, any age. It's just that Christian who gets up and decides to stop being a spectator and start being a warrior. A Christian who realizes that they are filled with Christ and when the pressure of life comes on, all it really does is release the presence and love of Jesus. 
Heavenly Father, we are yours. You paid the price. We're not even here to live our own lives anymore. So Lord, I ask that you raise up your people in Jesus' name. Amen.